Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website at techcentral.ie and your favourite podcasting app, of course, we keep you up to date with all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters and you can grab all that for free at the website, techcentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is Niall Kitson, our editor-in-chief. And this week, a very big week, Niall, because on Wednesday we had Global Net Neutrality Day and a lot of people are kind of going, uh, uh, what's global net neutrality? So in a nutshell, what is it? Uh, okay, in a nutshell, before we delve into the details, net neutrality is the belief that the internet should be classified as a utility as opposed to a commodity and that means it can be regulated. Simple, simple as that. So we can it, jump into the details now, but that is the broadest sense of what net neutrality is. Okay, so essentially uh, ISPs with net neutrality have to treat everybody equally. So as much as, uh, say, Netflix, for example, would love to have a high-speed uh, connection through your ISP and preference over all other traffic that is, that is going through, everybody is treated equally, yep. That's exactly it, yeah. If you, if you want to look at the internet as being, you know, uh, a motorway, Right. There, there are multiple lanes at the moment. Um, all the lanes are, you know, we'll say the same Running width, at the same speed. Same length, running at the same speed. Okay. Um, if net neutrality is rescinded, all of a sudden you can have a fast lane and a slow lane. And of course, the fast lane will be reserved for... The likes of Facebook and Google and Amazon and uh, Spotify and Netflix and stuff like that, which now gets me on to the interesting thing, because all of those huge companies who would love to have a high speed lane are campaigning to keep net neutrality and a level playing field for everybody. Why? Yeah, well, the reason is, uh, well, if you want to look at it on one level, it's to keep their users and keep their users happy um, on another level. You could look at net neutrality as being a kind of benevolent regulation of the market and access. And access really is the key to this, because as soon as you start limiting people's access to the Internet, you're going to start affecting people's overall experience. You're going to start affecting people's, I don't want to say interest in the Internet, but, you know, the capacity to access services, no matter where they are, um, is super important. Also, what happens if internet service providers decide that, okay, Google, we reckon your search is pretty good, but we prefer Bing. Maybe we'll charge you more than Bing. Ah, okay. So, but the, so the ISPs are prevented from doing that at the moment. And with net neutrality as it stands, um, everybody is, is treated the same, which means that there is nobody like controlling or making decisions about who gets preferences and who doesn't. Who gets preferences? Who, who gets to see what and who doesn't? Um, and to a certain extent, how much you pay for it. And there was an interesting discussion, um, a couple of years ago over, um, mobile networks 
because as we know mobile networks uh, in the states we're, we're getting used to 4g over here and looking towards 5g but in the states due to the proliferation of devices and irregular we'll call it network penetration you had a case where companies were arguing that hey our networks really weren't built for this kind of thing at least on the ground you can have fiber um, our networks aren't built for the sort of data traffic they're getting away with uh, now therefore um, mobile networks should play by a different set of rules right um, I, I think that got shot down but this this basically speaks to the the principle of net neutrality as well you know net net is in network not internet neutrality and if I'm not mistaken I think it was in 2015 the uh, the F uh, federal communications regulator in the United States did, said exactly that they said no uh, uh, internet traffic across mobile networks uh, across cable companies across fiber it's all treated the same there's no preferences or differences between anything and hence you've got net neutrality. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, ISPs are companies. They're going to look after their own bottom line at the end of the day. If they can make money out of charging more for the likes of Netflix and Spotify um, to access their networks, they're absolutely going to do it. yeah. Okay, so listen, what, what has changed then? Because in 2015, uh, the FCC said that uh, no net neutrality is in place, everybody is equal, there is no control, there is no preferences. What has changed? Well, there's been a change of government in the US. That's effectively what has happened. Um, and of course, with a, a change in government in the US, they don't, they don't have a permanent civil service. You've, you've got to keep people rotated. You've got to keep hiring people. And the current head of the FCC is a former uh, lawyer for Verizon, <laughs> whose name is Ajit Pai. And uh, his belief is that um, net neutrality is anti-innovation. It's anti-competition. Therefore, we shouldn't be regulating the Internet. And if ISPs want to do what they want to do, that's fine. Let them let them at it. What, What possibly can go wrong if industry is allowed police itself? So basically what he's saying is because you think net neutrality, if if you if you let the ISPs do what they want, uh, net neutrality is saying that the ISPs can't do what they want. They must treat everybody equally. But if this guy gets his way, it means that the ISPs then will be able to do what they want and they will be able to put high-speed traffic through for Netflix if Netflix are willing to pay for it. Yeah, uh, and a couple of years ago, uh, under the previous FCC administration, uh, one uh, one um, it was either a lobbyist or, or a Republican member uh, of, the, uh, of the commission that said, um, yeah, we don't envisage it as a fast lane and a slow lane. We look at it as being a fast lane and a super fast lane. <laughs> so th- with the reason that this is important then it kind of comes down to who controls uh who gets high speed access who doesn't get and at the moment it's a fl- it's a level playing field for everybody and this is what the big companies want because they don't want government control and from what you're saying it sounds to me like this issue is m- of net neutrality is more about the government taking control of the internet well, that's the that's the FCC argument in its current uh, form. It's like uh, as soon as you have government regulation, you have government sticking its nose where it's not needed. Um, they want to dismantle net neutrality um, and regulation completely and just let the market decide um, what value it can place on its services. So that's why um, this Wednesday was so important, where you had companies standing up and, and actually doing something really clever and going, look, if ISPs are able to, to charge a premium for, you know, using Google or using Facebook or using Netflix, 
um, or, you know, leaving people behind because they don't pay a premium. This is what the Internet will feel like. So they're intentionally running their sites slower to demonstrate what it would be like for sites that aren't willing or aren't able to pay that premium. Um, should should a premium be introduced? So this basically means that if you're a startup, if you're a small blogger, if you're somebody like that, you could get crushed through an absence of net neutrality. Mm. I love the list of big companies who are supporting uh, net neutrality. I mean, you've got Facebook and Google, who you'd expect, uh, Spotify and Netflix, who you'd expect. But also on the list is Pornhub. Yeah, yeah. Well, unless you got the adult industry on board, you're really gonna, not going to make much headway, are that's you? That's it, that's it. So listen, it's about uh, government control, which kind of leaks, uh, leads me into the other big story of the week, and that is a number of Twitter users with some uh, heavy financial backing are suing the American president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, over his Twitter account. What exactly is going on there? Yeah, I think this is from the Looney Tunes uh, department of the internet. Um, okay, here, here, here goes the argument. Uh, Donald Trump uh, has, believe it or not, the man is on Twitter. Did you know Donald Trump is on Twitter? <laughs> and uh, he doesn't he doesn't like criticism. He doesn't take criticism very well. And he's quite prone to blocking people um, that he doesn't like, which shows that, you know, OK, he, he reads his tweets. Um, he doesn't reply a whole lot, but, um, you know, it's there. Um, and according to Twitter's terms of service, he's completely you know, completely free to to block anyone that he wants. Uh, And this is a measure that's in place for good reason. Um, However, a group is suing him because they are arguing that his Twitter account amounts to a public forum. And being blocked means that they are having their freedom of speech uh, taken away from them. Uh, And there's two reasons, uh, well, three reasons why I think there's a load of nonsense. Uh, One, uh, the email, the Twitter account that's primarily being referred to is at real Donald Trump. Uh, this is an account that Donald Trump set up prior to even running for president. This was his personal mouthpiece, right? So it's it's an account that hasn't changed in function since he set it up in a private capacity. Okay, there is a second Twitter account called at POTUS. Um, POTUS being president of the United States, and Barack Obama, ha- uh, Barack Obama's, you know. Yeah, personally. Yeah, sure. The Obama administration had uh, control over it. Um, Now, the Trump administration has control over it. As far as anyone is concerned or should be concerned, that is a public forum that was set up specifically as a point of contact between the president and his constituency. Fine. Um, For me, that is a public forum. If people were uh, blocking people off, uh, blocking users off the POTUS Mm. account, yes, I think there is absolutely um an argument to be had there that people's freedom of speech is being um being limited by their inability to communicate with uh with the president now you know that president could be anyone uh could be donald trump could be barack obama could be whoever's in the future um that is my position my personal position on your that. personal position and that's from your personal twitter account I, uh, from my I, personal I, I, twitter I, account <laughs> that is my own business um and the third one the third reason why i think it's bunkum is that um twitter is a private company if they believe uh, Donald Trump is in violation of their terms of service, um, they can just kick him off. Well, there you go. Well said. I applaud your thinking, Niall Kitson. I applaud your thinking. Well, listen, two very interesting stories that are uh, happening uh, around the world uh, this week. We can get more details of that, of course, on the website at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Tech Central.
For our interview this week, this is astonishing. Did you know that at the Connect Centre in Trinity College, they have a Department of Ultimology? Now, just on the name alone, Department of Ultimology, we had to find out more about what it is that they do, and it turns out that it's fascinating stuff. Niall Kitson went down and had a chat with Fiona Hallinan and Kate Strain. Ultimology is the study of the dead or dying, which sounds pretty morbid, but it extends far beyond um, sort of the biological and, and the physical. But it also applies to ideas as well. So I'm out in the Connect Centre for Research into Future Networks, and I'm here to interview, I, I guess, the figureheads of the Department of Ultimology uh, who are affiliated to the uh, Research Centre here. I've got curator-in-residence Kate Strain and artist-and-researcher-in-residence Fiona Hallinan. Now, I guess to start off, just explain to us the importance of ultimology in an academic setting where, where you're dealing with things that are much more amorphous. Well, in an academic setting, especially like this one, we're in Trinity College, um, I became very curious about how modes of learning are enacted and how processes of, processes of knowledge collection um, go in and out of favour. And in the development of the Department of Ultimology, Fiona and myself were really interesting, interested in trying to track a kind of evolution of knowledge production. So across the university environment, we've noticed uh, since we were students here about 10 years ago, um, right up until today, how the evolution of knowledge production is changing. So curriculums change, uh, what students are studying changes, theories go out of fashion or fall back into favour. And we liked the idea that we could set up a new sort of discipline that would actually just take that as a focus. So when you're looking at ideas that um, either are being debunked, discredited, or, as you say, just falling out of fashion, how do you actually go about identifying what these ideas are? Are you literally walking into offices and saying, what aren't people interested in doing anymore? Yeah, exactly. So we go and have chats with researchers, heads of departments, students, also the staff that work across the university, because we want to get a kind of broader picture. Um, And one of the first questions we ask after we maybe offer our version of a definition of what ultimology could be understood to mean, then we would ask, what might be ultimological in your practice? So Fiona, just from your end, I'm I imagine you don't come with just an empty notebook and, you know, you're dictating away. I imagine that there's some sort of um, methodology in place. So when you're gathering ideas, what kind of methods are you using? Um, So we began working on this project in 2015 and we did so by reaching out across the board pretty much to different disciplines of Trinity College and asking people if they would meet with us. And so... As we did that, we started to realise that there were certain methodologies that we were actually creating through talking to people. And so one of the examples of those was the idea of ultimology as a service. And by that, we mean that ultimology can actually be utilised by people in different disciplines to reflect upon their own work. So that by meeting with people, we were putting the seed of this new discipline into their minds as a way or a frame by which they could reflect on their own work. Um, Another example was the idea of using negative space. And by that, I mean looking at the gap that's left behind when a new term comes into a discipline. So an example of that was 
when we met with Dr. Jean Quigley from the Department of Psychology, she described how the term personality was a relatively recent one in the discipline of psychology. And we asked her what then had been the, the term used to describe that set of qualities before the term personality. And she spoke about the idea of the soul. And from that, we sort of pictured the soul as this ultimological quality in disciplines of academia. And I guess it's kind of quaint when you look back at a lot of these ideas that people really would have taken seriously or, or hung their careers on in an awful lot of cases. I mean, have you ever found a little bit of pushback where people go, actually, you know, we do talk about this as being on the way out, but, but really there's still work going on here? I think it's really common that there could be people actively working on a subject that in the meantime, during their four years of research, becomes defunct or unpopular and I think that's a very real issue for people especially in fast moving or fast changing areas and that's one of the things that we're interested in with the idea of ultimology as a service that this is a place for people to come and discuss that experience um, but it, it does happen that, that people have considered this before obviously and um, the term ultimology really is one that people come with their own set of expectations about and pre-existing uses for. And uh, Kate, you were saying part of the um, department, if you will, and I'm almost tempted to put department in inverted commas when I talk about this. Um, we, were, we were talking earlier that it's almost a meta department. So explain how it works at a functional day-to-day -day level, because I imagine you don't both sit in the library with your heads in books or you're pitching to academic journals or that kind of thing. Well, um, maybe it's interesting to talk about another one of our key methodologies, which I would consider calling embodiment. So at the start of setting up this project, we realised that, that if we wanted it to be a real thing, then we had to treat it as one. And so we would never put um, the Department of Ultimology in inverted commas because it is a department. And it is a department because we've set it up to be one. So we, we speak about it as a department and in a way we through performative gestures, enact it, not just linguistically, but also practically. So in the real world and in the real um, set of parameters that make departments function and make Trinity what it is, we're part of that. And the reason is because we embody it. And embodiment as a kind of methodology for us, as people who are trying to figure out what ultimology could mean, is really important as well. Because rather than producing a kind of... Um, outcome-based object or archive or a uh, very tangible set of collected ideas, what we're trying to do is just embody the knowledge ourselves and become almost part of that process. So I think your uh, term meta department is actually really apt and I would also consider what we're doing as something like a performance um, although, of course, if we start to talk about it like that, it loses traction and it loses its own sense of reality. So for it to be uh, recognised in the way that it needs to be in order to be able to act in the way that it should, of course, it's a department. And, uh, of course, 
a very big part of us having this conversation right now is that you are part of the Connect Centre. How did that come to pass? I mean, one could uh, imagine you sort of operating on an Arts Council grant in a a musty office, but you're actually here in a a fairly contemporary building with nice shiny gear around you and uh, full backing of a a very prestigious uh, research centre. So tell us how that works on a a day-to-day basis. Like, what was the attraction Well, for us, we were really interested in positioning ourselves in a centre for uh, research that's based on the future. And I think saw a kind of um, openness and a willingness for researchers here to engage with ideas that are a little bit more reflective and a little bit more about tangential thinking. Uh, Rather than taking the straight line from A to B, we're kind of dragging them through the entire alphabet and back again, and then doing it backwards, just to try to see what it sounds like, with no real specific outcome in mind, other than we're super interested in the journey and the kind of... um, Uh, things that fall out along the way to that so connect was really exciting a really exciting place for us to be not only because of the kind of incredible research that's going on here but also because the openness of the openness with which we were being received and um yeah i think the way that it happened is actually we uh initially started the department with support from the Provosts Award. It's called um, Trinity Creative Challenge. And with that, we were able to fund a conference. It was the first international conference of ophthalmology. It happened in April in 2016. And we invited a number of practitioners, artists, researchers, theorists, philosophers, students, um, to present papers or presentations on uh, what ophthalmology meant to them and their practice, ostensibly. And we kind of designed it in a way where what in actual fact happened was a sort of exhibition that was presented in the guise of an academic conference. And so in this way we were able to very subtly subvert the expectations that people were approaching the conference with and engage them on another kind of level of engagement. So Fiona, when people come to the field of ophthalmology, when you, when you do invite people into one of your clinics or, or what have you... Um, what is the outcome of it? I mean, is it is it just having this space for conversation where ideas can be accepted and, I guess, remembered in a favourable light just to look back and say, this is what people working on, this is what people believed, and fair enough, it's, it's, it's not in vogue, it's been discredited, whatever, but it's still important and it's still part of the academic folklore, if you will. Is that kind of the end result you're looking for? I think one of the the main focuses on what we do is the actual process of creating a space for people to reflect on their own disciplines. And so that would be, I suppose, one of the first most important things that we want to do here in Connect is to meet with the researchers and create this space that's almost like a receptacle for ideas that are defunct or in the process of leaving or are obsolete or also to offer people a space to reflect on what maybe should be going that way in their research um, secondly we work on a series of events commissions and we're working towards a journal that we published in December 2016 so an example of the type of event would be the conference that Kate described then Next Monday, we're hosting um, an address to the Metaphysical Society, which is a way of engaging with the students of Trinity overall. So the Metaphysical Society is the Philosophy Society of Trinity College. Um, And then in future, we're hosting a talk by Ross Perlin of the Endangered Languages Alliance. 
So there's a kind of uh, fluidity and approach to events that is informed by the clinics, which themselves offer a space for people to come to and reflect on their own discipline. So, Kate, what's next for the department then, um, looking towards the future? Well, uh, that's a good question. The future, as we see it um, for the Department of Ophthalmology, is the next 100 years. So we're going to be um, a department affiliated with Trinity for that kind of span of time. And what we're doing right now is working on establishing a new department in every time zone in the world. And uh, the reason we want to do this is so that we never have to close the Department of Ophthalmology. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Fiona Hallinan and Kate Strain from the Connect Centre in Trinity College at the Department of Ultimology there. If you want to find out more about it, you can check out their website. It's departmentofultimology.com. And that's a department, the, the full thing, D-E-P-A-R-T-M-E-N-T of, and so on and so forth, departmentofultimology.com. Niall is still with us. Just before we go, Niall, what's our one more thing this week, the one more story that we just couldn't squeeze into the show that's online? Yeah, well, it looks like the high-definition uh, video camera maker, Red, responsible for making uh, uh, an awful lot of the blockbuster movies we're familiar with today, um, they're getting into the phone market, and uh, they reckon 3D is the future of the smartphone. Ooh, well, you can read out more on that, and of course, all of the Irish tech news with early updates, daily newsletters, and more at techcentral.ie, as well as our weekly tech radio show online, and broadcast every Friday at 6 o'clock on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty, and from Niall Kitson at Tech Central. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.